Welcome to the end of innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In last week's episode, we looked at President Kennedy's death at Parkland Hospital. After the president arrived at the hospital, doctors fought to save his life, but their efforts were hopeless as he was pretty much dead as the limo was speeding out of Dealey Plaza. A Catholic priest was summoned to administer the last rites at 1 p.m. John F. Kennedy was pronounced dead. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Though seriously wounded, Governor Connolly would recover from his injuries. The president's body was brought to Love Field and placed upon Air Force One. Before the plane took off, Lyndon Johnson stood in the tight, crowded compartment and took the oath of office, administered by U.S. District Court Judge Sarah Hughes. The brief ceremony took place at 2.38 p.m. So now back to Oswald and his movements after the assassination. We took a detailed look at his movements as he left the Texas School Book Depository back in Episode 9. After leaving the depository, Oswald hopped on City Bus 1213 at 12.40 p.m. At just the time that Oswald stepped on the bus, the Secret Service placed a frantic call for a priest to administer the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church to John F. Kennedy. With all of the police activity in the area around Dealey Plaza, traffic had come to a standstill. At 12.44 p.m., Oswald asked for a transfer, got off the bus, crossed in front of it, and started walking to the Greyhound bus station three and a half blocks away. As he proceeded, police began broadcasting a description of the shooter based on the eyewitness account of Howard Brennan, a 44-year-old steamfitter who had been watching the presidential motorcade from a concrete retaining wall at the corner of Elm and Houston. Brennan had a clear view of the depository sixth-floor window where he saw a man who fit Oswald's description. That description matched Oswald and hundreds of other men in Dallas that day. Attention all squad. The suspect in the shooting at Elm and Houston is reported to be an unknown white male, approximately 30, slender build, height 5 feet 10 inches, weight 165 pounds, reported to be armed with what is thought to be a 30 caliber rifle. At this same time, a dispatcher ordered police car number 10 to patrol the Oak Cliff area. The driver of the police car was J.D. Tippett, an 11-year veteran of the force. Dallas police had recently begun experimenting with the new policy of allowing officers to ride along in cars patrolling low-crime areas. Tippett had voted for Kendi and he would have liked to have seen him, but he was also relieved to be far removed from the dangerous and high-stakes job of guarding his safety. At 12.47 p.m., Oswald entered a taxi driven by William Whaley at the Greyhound bus terminal. Whaley opened the back door for his passenger, but Oswald said he wanted to sit in the front seat, which was a common practice in the Soviet Union where the former U.S. Marine had defected in 1959. Oswald told him to take him to the 500 block of North Beckley. While Oswald was riding in the cab, police once again broadcast a description of the shooter to all cruisers. Whaley, who had not yet heard of the news of the shooting, asked his passenger about all the police sirens. Oswald did not respond. He rode the entire way in silence. The driver later told investigators he thought Oswald was, quote, a wino two days off the bottle, end quote. Here's Mr. Whaley in an interview talking about his time with Lee Oswald that day. Well, he just looked like an ordinary working man. He was small, had on gray work clothes, brown shirt and a silver stripe and a work jacket. He said he got in and said he wanted to go to 500 block North Beckley. What did you talk to him about as you came around here? Well, I didn't talk very much. I didn't know the president was shot at that time. And the police cars and sirens are running all around this end of town, making a lot of noise. So 
All I said to him was, I wonder what the hell all the commotion is in this end of town. He didn't answer me. So I didn't say any more to him. I figured he was one of the people that didn't want to talk. He had something else on his mind. What time did you log the uh, fact that uh, this man got in your cab? I believe it was somewhere between uh, 12.15 and 12.45. I never log exactly on the minute. It's always approximate time. Well, now, you uh, say that uh, when he got in back there at the bus station and you started to cross here, about how long did it take you to make this run? Approximately somewhere between six and a half and eight minutes. Mr. Whaley, when you went up to the Warren Commission, what were they more interested in than uh, anything else? Any particular area of your testimony? Well, yes, sir, in the time element. And what I put out on my sheet, they want to know why I approximated my time, and I explained to them that I put the trip down as every 15 minutes. That's four an hour, which is usually the run of it. You can't put them down exactly to the minute because you'd have to stop on in traffic or be writing while you're moving, and that's dangerous. So I just approximate mine. It runs on the 15 minutes. Now, he lived uh, right here in this block. Right here in the same block, right here, 1018. Which one, the house right there? That house right there. But he didn't say anything about getting out. No, sir, and he wasn't looking at it as we passed. And about along right in here, he asked me, he said, he didn't ask me, he just said, this will do fine right here. But the cars were parked like this, and I waited until I passed the last car and pulled over to the curb, which was the intersection of Neely and... North, and North Beckley. And uh, did you tell him how much the fare was? Or what? No, sir, I didn't. He just looked at the meter and his 95 cents. He handed me a dollar, opened the door and got out, walked around in front of the cab and crossed the street, and that's the last I saw him. I went on about my business. Oswald had gone about four blocks past his boarding house. Now he began walking back. Dallas police already were broadcasting a description of their suspect. After the two-and-a-half-mile ride, Oswald asked the driver to drop him off at Beckley and Neely, about a ten-minute walk from his boarding house. Why not have the driver take him right to his house? Could Oswald have feared that police would have already identified him as the killer and were speeding to his room? Or possibly he wanted to spy the area and make sure it was safe? Quote, this will do, end quote, he said. The driver pulled over to the curb. The fare was 95 cents. Oswald handed the driver a dollar, and he said, quote, keep the change, end quote. It took Oswald nine minutes to make it to this rooming house. The housekeeper, Earlene Roberts, had just learned that the president had been shot when she saw the front door swing open and Oswald come in. The estimated time is 1.03 p.m., 33 minutes after the assassination. Miss Roberts says, quote, oh, you're in a hurry, end quote. Roberts was watching a television news report of the assassination. She said to Oswald, quote, isn't that terrible about the president, end quote? According to Roberts, Oswald barely replied. He went directly to his room but stayed for only four or five minutes. Here's Arlene Roberts talking about Oswald arriving at the rooming house that day. When I got the telephone call about the person being killed, I walked over here and turned the television on, and the door opened, and he come in in a hurry. Now, who are you in a hurry? He never reported his lips, went to his room, got a short coat put on, and went out and to the bus stop. And that's the last I saw of it. 
Although it was a warm day, Oswald pulled a white Eisenhower jacket from the rack of his closet, tucked a revolver into the waistband of his pants, and rushed out of the house. He spent a total of four minutes in the house. During that time, doctors at Parkland Hospital officially declared President Kennedy dead. Shortly after 1 p.m., Attorney General Robert Kennedy received a phone call at his home in Virginia informing him that the wounds his brother had suffered proved fatal. There is also a very strange incident that occurred while Oswald was at his rooming house. I feel this is one of the most important aspects of the case, so let's examine it in detail. Erling Roberts says while Oswald was in his room, a Dallas police car pulled up in front of her house and honked. She explained, quote, I had worked for some policemen and sometimes they come by. I just glanced out, saw the number on the car. It wasn't the police car I knew, and I ignored it, end quote. She said the police car was directly in front of her home when the driver sounded the horn. Like, tit tit. She said the car then eased on, and they just went around the corner that way. According to Roberts, there were two uniformed policemen in the car. Most unusual since daytime patrols in that area of the city were limited to one officer, such as Tippett. She could not recall the number of the car precisely, but said she recalled that the first two numbers of a possible three-digit combination were a one and a zero. Tippett was driving car number 10 that day, and Tippett failed to respond to a dispatcher call at the approximate time of the police car incidents. Immediately following the police car episode, Robert said Oswald came out of his room and left hurriedly, zipping up a jacket. She said he left her house five or six minutes after 1 p.m. Robert said she looked out the window and last saw Oswald standing at a nearby bus stop. A big question is how long did Oswald wait at the bus stop before setting out on foot? Of all the aspects of the Kennedy assassination, the shooting of Dallas policeman J.D. Tippett has received less attention than most others. On November 22, 1963, Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett was working beat number 78, his normal patrol area in South Oak Cliff, a residential area of Dallas. At 12.45 p.m., 15 minutes after Kennedy was shot, Tippett received a radio order to drive to the central Oak Cliff area as part of a concentration of police around the center of the city. At 12.54 p.m., Tippett radioed that he had moved as directed. By then, several messages had been broadcast describing a suspect in the shooting at Dealey Plaza as a slender white male in his early 30s, 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighing about 165 pounds. Oswald was a slender white male, 24 years old, 5 feet 9 inches tall, and an estimated weight of 150 at autopsy. According to the Warren Commission investigation, at approximately 1.10 to 1.12 p.m., Tippett was driving slowly eastward on East 10th Street, about 100 feet past the intersection of 10th Street and Patton Avenue, when he pulled alongside a man who resembled the police description. Officer Tippett was then shot and killed in front of 404 10th Street. The assailant walked over to Tippett's car and exchanged words with him through an open vent window. Tippett opened his car door, and as Tippett walked toward the front of the car, the assailant drew his handgun, and three shots were fired across the hood of the car. All three shots hit Tippett in the chest. The assailant then came around to where Tippett lay and fired a fourth shot into his head. Tippett's body was transported from the scene of the shooting by ambulance to Methodist Hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 1.25 p.m. by Dr. Richard A. Lagoria. It was approximately 45 minutes after the assassination that Officer J.D. Tippett was killed in what may have been an unrelated incident several miles from the assassination site. The Dallas Police, the FBI, and the Warren Commission all drew the unsupported conclusion that Oswald shot him. He was actually arrested for the murder of Tippett, not for the killing of the president. It is possible that Tippett was killed by someone whose intention was to implicate Oswald in the president's assassination. 
Officer Gerald Hill, who had custody of the 38 revolver supposedly found on Oswald at the time of his arrest, testified to the Warren Commission that he had discovered six live rounds in the gun's chamber. He also found two empty cartridges at the murder scene that came from an automatic weapon, not a revolver. Revolvers do not charge shells after firing. The evidence suggests that Oswald never fired that gun or shot anyone that day. When Officer Gerald Hill was questioned by CBS News as to what kind of weapon was used and how many shots were fired, he replied, a 38 snub-nosed revolver that was fired twice, but Tippett was shot four times. Does this prove that there was another killer on the scene at the Tippett slaying? Based on the evidence, Oswald simply could not have killed Tippett. To begin with, Tippett was shot with an automatic pistol. As mentioned earlier, the handgun that was alleged to belong to Oswald was a Smith & Wesson revolver that had been rechambered to hold 38 special ammunition. The bullet shells found at the scene of the shooting did not fit Oswald's gun. Many of the witnesses to the Tippett killing did not identify Oswald as the killer in the police lineup when first asked, but then changed their mind later after they saw pictures of Oswald in the news. The only eyewitness who positively and immediately identified him was Helen Louise Markham, but her identification was extremely suspect. All of the witnesses who eventually identified Oswald recognized him as the man they had seen fleeing the scene, not actually committing the crime. Of paramount importance is the inescapable fact that Oswald couldn't have had enough time to go from his rooming house to the scene of the Tippett shooting by the time the shooting took place. Dozens and dozens of researchers and even the Warren Commission tried to cover the area that Oswald would have had to cover in the time frame allowed. None have ever been able to duplicate this feat. It was impossible for Oswald to be able to cover this distance on foot in the time allotted. The evidence supporting Oswald's involvement in the Tippett killing included a revolver allegedly in his possession when he was arrested, four recovered spent bullets, four empty bullet shells, and a light-colored jacket. It was the evidence upon which the Warren Commission based its case, claiming that since Oswald killed Tippett, he must have killed President Kennedy. Using that logic, if it can be shown that Oswald couldn't have killed Tippett, we can conclude that he didn't shoot the president either. Although there isn't a shred of evidence that actually links the Tippett killing to the Kennedy assassination, the Warren Commission tied the two murders to each other. We'll examine the Tippett evidence in further detail. Aquila Clements lived on the north side of 10th Street in Dallas. On November 22, 1963, Clements was sitting on the porch of her house when she saw Officer J.D. Tippett killed. She later testified in a television documentary that the gunman was, quote, a short guy and kind of chunky or heavy, end quote. That description does not fit Lee Harvey Oswald at all. She said the other man, without the gun, was tall and thin in khaki trousers and a white shirt. Now that does sort of describe Oswald. She also claimed that the Dallas police warned her not to repeat this story to others or she might get hurt. Mrs. Clemens, where were you on November 22, 1963? I was working for Miss Mother, uh, 327th, 10th. Just where? down the block from where Tiffany was killed. Did you know Officer Tippett? Yes, I saw him many times. And did you hear the shots? Yes, I heard the shots. And what did you do? I ran out into the street and looked down the street and I ran back down the street where he was lying and I looked at him. Now, when you heard the shots and you went out of the house, did you see a man with a gun? Yes, I did. What was he doing? Oh, he was reloading it. When I said he was reloading his gun. And how would you describe that man? Well, he's kind of chunky. He's kind of heavy. He wasn't a very big man. 
Was he tall or short? He was kind of short there. Short and heavy? Yes. And was there any other man there? Yes, there was one on the side of the street. All I know, he told him to go. Mrs. Clemens, uh, the man who had the gun, uh, did he make any motion at all to the other man across the street? No more told him to go. Well, he waved his hand yes, and said, Go on. And then what happened with the man with the gun? Uh, he unloaded and reloaded. And what did the other man do? man kept going straight down the street. And then did they go in opposite directions? Yes, they were. They, they weren't together. They went this way from each other. The one down the shooting went this way. The other went straight down past street that way. What was the, uh, the man who did not do the shooting, but the man who went in the other direction from the man with the gun? What was he wearing, if you remember? Well, I feel like remember how it looked like light jackets and a white shirt. And was he tall or short? He was tall. And was he heavy or thin? He was thin. But the one who did the, the one who had the gun seconds after Tippett was shot, he was short. Yes, he, was, he was short and kind of heavy. Now, did you testify before the Warren Commission about this? Case? I am saying thank anyone. Did anyone come to see you after the murder of Officer Tippett? Yes, he was a man who came. I don't know what he was. He came to my house and talked to me. But I don't know what he looked like a policeman to me. He did? Did he have a gun? Yes, he wore a gun. Mrs. Clemens, how long after Tippett was shot did this man with a gun come to visit you? About two, about two days. It was about two days. Said that I might get hurt. Uh, someone might hurt me if I would talk. About what you saw? What I saw. He just told me to be a best if I didn't say anything because... I might get hurt. Anthony Summers, the author of the Kennedy Conspiracy, stated, quote, Obviously, Mrs. Clemens should have been questioned more thoroughly than in a television interview. She said she had been visited by the FBI, who decided not to take a statement because of her poor health. Mrs. Clemens suffered from diabetes, hardly a condition to deter efficient investigators from taking a statement. According to two reporters who visited Mrs. Clemens several years after the assassination, she and her family still spoke with conviction of seeing two men at the scene of the Tippett shooting. Mrs. Clemens' story finds cooperation from another witness, and he too was ignored, end quote. Aquila Clemens was not called to give evidence to the Warren Commission. Why? Domingo Benavidez was driving his pickup truck along 10th Street in Oak Cliff on November 22, 1963, when he claimed he saw an assailant kill J.D. Tippett. Benavidez turned his truck into the curb and ducked under the dash. He was 20 feet from Tippett's squad car at the time of the shooting. He was not asked to see the police lineup in which Oswald appeared. Although he later said the killer resembled newspaper pictures of Oswald, he described the man differently. Quote, I remember the back of his head seemed like his hairline sort of went square instead of tapered off. It kind of went down and squared off and made his head look flat in the back. End quote. Benavidez reports that he has been repeatedly threatened by police and advised not to talk about what he saw. Benavidez played a number of roles in the events of that day. First, he and T.F. Bailey, another bystander, used Officer Tippett's car radio to call for help. Second, Benavidez found several bullet shells, which he turned over to the police. Although he witnessed the shooting, he reported that he heard only three shots. Here's an interview from 1967 by Benavidez. Opponents of the Warren report maintain that Officer Tippett was shot not by Oswald, but by others. 
Who shot Officer Tippett? Eddie Barker talked to two witnesses who were on the scene of the Tippett murder. First, Domingo Benavides, who was at the wheel of a truck across the street from the scene. As I was driving down the street, I seen this police car. We're sitting here, and the officer was getting out of the car, and apparently had been talking to the man that was standing by the car. The policeman got out of the car, and uh, as he walked past the windshield of the car, where they kind of lined up over the hood of the car, well, uh, the, this other man shot him. And, of course, he was reaching for his gun. And uh, so uh, I stand there, you know, just, I mean, sitting there <laughs> in a truck and uh, not in no big hurry to get out. Of course, I was sitting there watching everything. Uh, this man turned from the car then and uh, took a couple steps. Then, uh, as he turned to walk away, well, he, uh, he was unloading his gun and he took the shells, held them in his hand, and as he took off, uh, well, he threw them in the bushes. More or less like nothing really trying to get rid of them. I guess he didn't figure he was caught anyway, so he just threw them in the bushes. But he, as he started to turn and walk away, well, he stopped and looked back at me. And uh, I didn't know if he figured, well, I'll just let this poor guy go, or he has nothing to do with it, or, you know, I'm not out to kill everybody, just, you know, whoever gets in my way, I guess. I give him enough time to get around the house, thinking he might have went in the house. I sat there for maybe a second or two, and then uh, jumped out of the truck and run over. As I walked by, I didn't even slow down. I see the officer's dead, so uh, I just walked in, uh, got in the car, and uh, I figured that would be the fastest way. In fact, I don't even know why I called him on the radio. I just figured now that it was the fastest way to, to get a police officer out. Hello, police operator. Go ahead. Go ahead. It says news and shooting out here. What is it at? Several other people come up uh, later? Immediately afterwards. I mean, it was just... Oh, after his uh, people, I asked a block away, like Mr. Calloway, he come up and uh, he says, uh, let's go get him or something. And then this cow pulled up right afterwards. And uh, so Calloway went over and took the gun's uh, officer's gun out of his hand. But Calloway didn't go after him, did he? Yeah, Calloway took off to go try to catch him. Tom, what about those uh, expended shells? Well, they were looking all over the place for evidence, I guess, and, and uh, taking fingerprints and what have you. So uh, I guess they was going to walk off and leave them. You know, not knowing it was there and uh, seeing I knew where they was at, I walked over and, and uh, picked up a stick and picked them up and put them in a Winston package. I think I picked up two and put them in a Winston package, and then uh, as I was walking back, I picked the other one up by hand, I believe. And uh, I picked them up a stick, you know, keep them leaving fingerprints on because I figured they might need them. The cartridges that Benavides picked up were positively identified as being fired in Oswald's revolver. But only one of the four lead bullets removed from Officer Tippett's body could be positively identified with that revolver by Illinois ballistics identification expert Joseph Nichol. 
Ted Calloway went to the police station that night and made a positive identification of Oswald in a lineup. But Mr. Benavides did not do so. Eddie Parker asked him if he were sure Oswald did the shooting. Is there any doubt in your mind that Oswald was the man you had seen shoot Tippett? No, sir. There was no doubt at all, period. Uh, I could even tell you how he combed his hair and the clothes he wore and what have you to the detail. And if he had a scar on his face, I could probably tell you about it. But uh, you don't get things like that. Benavides seemed sure that Lee Harvey Oswald was the man he saw shoot Officer J.D. Tippett, but that interview was back in 1967. He sure didn't feel that way on the night after the shooting. In fact, he wasn't even called by the Dallas Police Department to view a lineup because, quote, he didn't think he was very good at identifying people, end quote. In 1965, his brother Edward Benavides, who was a dead ringer for Domingo, was shot in the back of the head in a club in Dallas. Domingo was convinced that Eddie's murder was a case of mistaken identity, and he was the intended victim. Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination, we continue to look at the shooting of Officer J.D. Tippett. We will hear testimony from the Warren Commission's star witness in the shooting, Helen Markham. We will also follow Oswald's trek to the Texas Theater, where he was ultimately arrested. We'll see you next week. <laughs>